I want to do a little exercise in cultural relevance today. If you've seen this phrase we're going to put on the screen, I want you to raise your hand, okay? So raise your hand if you've seen this phrase either online or you've heard people use it in conversation or maybe you posted something on Instagram or Facebook using hashtag no filter. Hashtag no filter became a thing on on the rise of some apps like Instagram and Facebook as they started to add these things to photos called filters. Now, before this time, a filter is what uh, air went through in your car or water went through in your kitchen, but now filters are what your pictures are run through. It's on your phone. It's a little bit more intangible. And, And filters are fun, right? Like maybe you sit with your spouse or your significant other or your friend and you take pictures like this one. Um, maybe you have some favorite filters. This is one of mine that I use. I, I have five friends on Snapchat, my siblings, my wife, and my mom, and I send these kind of pictures to them. They're filters. And that one, uh, we're just going to leave that one up for a little bit. That's just, just so disturbing. So you might wake up in the middle of the night with that face, like right in front. But filters are funny, right? And here's, here's a whole plethora of them. So if you want to take a picture of that, that's great. Just kidding. Um, but filters are funny, right? And they've kind of become, if you're a, if you're a phone person, uh, they've kind of become a way we like operate on social media in taking photos. And this, ha- and this hashtag no filter is kind of this claim to say my picture that I took with my phone or my camera that I've now uploaded is so good. I didn't have to run it through anything to like be worthy of posting, Okay, like I'm a good enough phone photographer to post this thing without a filter. But a lot of us use these filters for our faces or for things in our lives. And it's kind of it's kind of a funny way we interact with other people in the world. But I think some of us live with more filters than we may realize and more filters that are not just on our phone or for the car air or for the water but actually we kind of we kind of filter kind of filter our own lives we kind of like run ourselves through a filter we run ourselves through this image filter whether it's it's a black and white version of myself or whether it's the funny version of myself or it's the confident version of myself or it's the have it all together version of myself, we kind of run ourselves through these filters. And when we do that, we're really trying to just meet this expectation. Like there's a certain need that we feel like we have to meet. And so we run ourselves through this. We project this certain image to to fulfill this expectation, to fulfill this filter we may live with. On the flip side, think of the most secure person you know. Think of the most confident person you know. Maybe it's your dad, maybe it's your uncle or your grandpa. They're the person that they wear shorts in the wintertime, right? They wear Crocs to like the formal family event, and they are just confident. They're just secure in who they are. They like what they like. They're like Derek, right? They fish in their driveway, okay? Like they're just going to like what they like. We kind of poke fun of those people. In my life, uh, one of those people is my dad. In my siblings, and I love to give my dad a hard time for the things that he's passionate about or his mannerisms or the quirks he has. And it's funny, right? Like we tease those people. Or maybe you're saying to yourself like, Derek, like I am that person and I'm just like confident in who I am. And that's funny, right? Like we kind of poke fun at them. But if you're anything like me, I have like this this subtle respect for those people too. Like there's something cool about 
the guy who can wear Crocs and not think twice. Like there's, there's something cool about like the cutoff jean guy. There's something cool about the person who just likes what they like and they just are who they are and, and they're just cool with everyone knowing that. Um, but a lot of us don't experience that. Like if you're anything like me, before you walk into the meeting, before you pick up the phone, before you go to a certain social event or you're in a certain social setting, we have these conversations and we have these filters that we run ourselves through. Who do I need to be in this situation? Or what do I need to be like in this situation? Do I need to be the funny guy or the secure guy or the confident guy or the know-it-all guy? We run ourselves through these filters. Think about, think about this question. How would life be different if I didn't live with the weight of trying to be someone I'm not. How would life, how would my life be different if I didn't live with the weight, the the pressure, the feeling of I have to be someone I'm not. I have to meet this expectation. I have to be X, Y, and Z person. I have to be the funny person or whatever it is for you. How would your life be different if you didn't live with the weight a feeling like you had to be someone you weren't. Hold that thought. We've been talking this month about schemes, these, these patterns of living, these ways of living in our lives that somewhere along the way we, we don't really mean to live this way, like we know what maybe Jesus invites us to live, but somewhere along the way we get trapped in this scheme, and it's like a really good like Ponzi scheme or sales marketing thing that we eventually buy into, and we get farther, farther enough down the road that, that we kind of realize, man, this isn't all what it like promised to be. It's like a, it's like a Ponzi scheme, like it promised what it it couldn't really give me. And like Pastor John said, and like we've said this month, these schemes really come from these things called idols. It's this ancient idea and this idea from, from the, the Bible that talk about these things called idols. Now, if you're like me, you did not wake up this morning and stare at like a golden calf or anything like that in your room, or you don't have something on your kitchen table or on your fireplace that looks like an idol physically. But, what some of us do wrestle with is these idols in our hearts. These things in our hearts that set themselves in the place of God. These things in our hearts that set themselves up of who God wants to be and how he wants to lead our lives. We, we painted some definitions of idols. There's three definitions. An idol is this. Whatever we give excessive authority to direct our lives. A thing, a person, an expectation, a group, an opinion, a platform, Whatever we give excessive authority to direct our life, our decisions, our behavior, whatever we give that authority might might be an idol. Whatever we follow without even considering what Jesus says or invites us into. The thing or the person we follow without even considering what Jesus may invite us to or have for us. That might might be an idol in my life or in your life. Or thirdly, whatever causes us to disregard Jesus when we do hear, like when we see what Jesus has compared to what this thing or this person has for us, when we disregard that, what he says or invites us into, it might be this idol. King David in the New Testament was the leader of God's people, Israel, and he wrote about idols saying this. Psalm 115, it says this, Not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. 
because of your love and faithfulness, because of who you are, why do the nations say, the other nations, people that are not following God and the God of Israel, where is their God? Our God, David says, is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols, the idols of other nations, the idols of other people, those, those gods they're making for themselves, they're silver and gold. They're, they're tangible. They're measurable. Made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear. Noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel. Is anyone getting the point yet? But cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. It's this really interesting picture David paints of these idols that really promise what they can't deliver. It's these schemes that we get duped into and and they promise fulfillment. They promise joy. They promise peace. They promise hope. But really those things are these idols that they can't really talk. They can't really hear. They can't really understand life. They can't really deliver what they are promising. They're they're these idols and, and they turn out to be empty. They turn out to be hollow and shallow. And like those things are in our life, the things that we may give excessive authority or direction to in our lives, sometimes the filter like, can be a thing of, of, of an idol for us. Sometimes the filter can be something that we get so caught up with. Sometimes we live with this expectation of who we think we should be or who we try to be that it becomes an idol in our hearts and our lives. And all of a sudden we're like a slave to like this, this version of ourselves that we think we should be or, the, or what culture may say to us or what our family may say to us. And you say, man, I don't know if that's really who I'm created to be. We live with this weight of fulfilling a, a role, of fulfilling an expectation, of, of living into this filter. And I'd love to look with you today at kind of like a case study of someone who um, like we said earlier, may have been in his day like the person to wear the Crocs with the cutoffs. Like he might be that kind of guy. That kind of guy that kind of knew who he was, knew what he was called to do, and resisted this pressure to fulfill this certain expectation or to live with this certain label on him or to have this certain filter. Um, his name was John the Baptist. And if you've grown up in church or maybe you've been around church for a while, you probably heard of John John was really a prophet. He was a messenger from God sent ahead of Jesus to really point people to people's attention, their focus to Jesus. It wasn't to point to himself, but it was to say, hey, the one that God has promised for years and years and years, he's actually coming and his name is Jesus. And John was a very interesting cat. Um, John, John wore like animal skins, the scripture tell us. Uh, John ate like wild honey and locusts. Okay, so as we... As we look at this scripture, picture a guy with some honey residue on his beard, wearing animals' clothing with um, with insects that he has not flossed out of his teeth yet. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to John chapter three, and we're just gonna we're gonna pick up on something uh, that John the Baptist says about himself and about Jesus, and I want you to listen. Uh, Maybe there's some people in this story that are trying to project a certain image on John. And let's see, how he, let's see how he pushes up against that. John 3, starting at verse 22. It says this. 
After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Another translation says where he relaxed with them and baptized. So Jesus is chilling. Now John also was baptizing. John the Baptist was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water. And people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. John would eventually give his life in prison for following Jesus and telling people about him. This is before that. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing, which which could be baptism. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing, and catch this, and everyone's going to him. Jesus is making them lose business, and they're upset about it. And John replies like this, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. Then catch what John says. He must become greater, and I must become less. John's saying this about Jesus and, and, this, and this label people are trying to put on him. Jesus must become greater, and I must become less. Uh, another paraphrase, uh, words, those last couple of verses in this way, it says this. John answered them, so they're all upset that Jesus is taking their following. They're upset that Jesus is taking their, their group, and John answers them by saying, it's not possible for a person to succeed. I'm talking about eternal success. I'm talking about lasting success. I'm talking about eternal significance. I'm talking about everlasting legacy and impact without heaven's help. You yourselves were there when I made it public that I was not the Messiah, but simply the one sent ahead of him to get things ready. The one who gets the bride is by definition the bridegroom, and the bridegroom's friend, his best man, that's me in place at his side where he can hear every word, and he's genuinely happy. How could he be jealous when he knows that the wedding is finished and the marriage is off to a good start? That's why my cup is running over. John gives us a picture. That's why I'm more than happy. That's why I have more than enough joy. Then watch this. John says, this is the assigned moment. He's talking about Jesus. This is the assigned moment. For him to move into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. This is the assigned moment, John says, for Jesus to slip right into the center, to come right into the center while I slip off to the sidelines. What's John saying? What's John saying? These people are trying to come to him and say, John, this is who you should be. Like Jesus is taking your groupies. He's taking your following. He's taking your people the people that you once had influence and power over and you convince them of who you are. And John says, actually, my whole goal, like my whole life was made so I could just come before Jesus and point people to him. And I love that. Like John gets this picture of Jesus coming into the center and him slipping to the sidelines. 
I think there's something really powerful in what John said. He says this, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Messiah. But I'm just sent ahead of him. A lot of us in our lives and in our relationships and in our jobs and in our families, we can live with this pressure to to fill in the blank, I am this. Maybe if we were in John's shoes, we might say, yeah, that's right, I I, I am the guy. Actually, Jesus, I, I don't know, like, I am the Messiah. But a lot of us live with this pressure, like John's trying to be convinced here, I am the answer, maybe. Or maybe for you, it's I am the source, I am the provider, I am the answer, I am whatever you would fill in there. And John finds this real profound freedom and this real lasting freedom in just saying, actually, it's not all about me. Like, actually, this whole thing isn't actually about me. Like, actually, my whole life isn't about me. It's actually about lifting Jesus up and me becoming less. And what's interesting about that is John actually finds his significance in becoming less. Like, John actually finds his identity and who he's supposed to be and who he's called to be in actually not focusing on that, but focusing on Jesus. See, John finds his identity in elevating Jesus and finding his place in elevating Jesus. And it points to this really, really interesting picture that a lot of us live with this pressure to be a certain thing, to look a certain part, to to play a certain part in a relationship or a family. And it can turn into this this idol that sets itself up. That is, is, before we know it, we, we get so consumed with being a certain person or having a certain label or fitting into a certain mold that we actually start to lose ourselves. We actually start to, to forget who Jesus has created to be. And it points, John's, John's life points to this reality. And what we just read points to this truth. Is that this idol of image, this idol of image that says you have to project, you have to be a certain thing, you have to run yourself through this filter for you to be accepted or significant. That really says to us, you are whatever you project. And Jesus says, no, you are who I made you to be. The idol of image says you are whatever you project. Whatever is on the outside is true about you. If you could just convince people that, that you're confident, if you could just convince people that you have it all together, if you could just convince people that you know what's up, then it's true. And a lot of us live with that. We, get, we kind of get obsessed with this outside image, this outside label. But Jesus says, actually, I care more about what's on the inside. I actually care more about the person I created, not just the label or the image you're trying to project. The idol of image says you are whatever you project. If you can just project it, if you can just make people think it, it's true. But Jesus actually invites us to something much deeper. He actually invites us to to, to live this life from the inside out, not to take on a label, but to actually live with him from the inside out. I did some um, biology homework this this week, which if you know me, is a scary thing. Uh, me trying to understand biology is not a good thing. I think I just passed biology in high school, um, but my wife studied biology in her undergraduate degree and knows way more than me about plants and trees and the like. Um, but I did some research on trees this, this week, and what's interesting about trees is that if you don't know like biology or um, science and things like that, you kind of look at a tree and you're like, oh, that's nice. You know, that's a nice thing, okay? 
But what you don't see behind the bark and the leaves and the branches is all these layers, like all these parts of the tree. And you'll see them labeled in this image. There's kind of the outer and it moves in and all with unique characteristics and things that make that part of the tree itself. The deepest part of that is called heartwood, named after the human heart, okay? Heartwood, the very center of the tree. And I learned something about um, a thing with heartwood called heart rot. Now, heart rot is a disease in trees that actually comes from the outside in and infects the tree, and it begins to rot the insides. This is what one article says about heart rot. It says, heart rot affects the inner core or heart of the tree and can affect any species of tree both deciduous and evergreen. It's caused by many different fungal agents, I just said fungal, that gain access to the tree via wounds in the bark. The heart of the tree is an important part of its support structure, and damage to the heartwood can eventually cause the tree to become weakened and more susceptible to damage by things like high winds. The first external sign that you'll see of this heart rot is a mushroom-like body called a conch, okay? It's called a conch, growing out of the tree from the trunk, usually around the site of damage to the bark. By the time this conch has appeared, the tree will have sustained considerable damage, and there could be several meters of decay behind the mushroom. Okay, it's this interesting picture. This heart rot gets in the tree. It starts to rot the inside. All the while, on the outside, it looks exactly the same as any other tree. What's interesting is years and years later, you start to see the stuff on the outside. By that time, the tree looks a little bit more like this than being a solid uh, plant. Have you ever known someone um, that a relationship changed, a phase in life changed, something happened, a crisis hit? And it seemed like everything in that person's life just like spun out. Like it was just everything unraveled. The secret came out. The the lie was exposed. The job was lost. And everything in that person's life kind of just blew up at once. It wasn't step by step. It was like one moment was was just the changing of it all. I wonder if like, I wonder if trees could actually teach us something about that. See, in trees... Long before outside signs are shown, long before there's external uh, signals of something going wrong, there's this inner rotting of the heart. And maybe, maybe our lives are like that too. Like maybe before anyone sees it on the outside, there could be a label or this pressure or this weight we carry so long that it starts to, to kind of wear on the insides. It starts to rot out our insides. It starts to actually suppress the life inside of us. Maybe, like, maybe it's an idol of something like an image, of, of fulfilling this certain image of what you try to be or what you think you should be. Or maybe for you it's something totally different. Maybe it's a totally different thing we've even talked about this month. But just like trees, I wonder if for some of us, we get so caught up on the outside. We get so caught up on what's on our bark and our branches and our leaves that we miss actually being healthy on the inside. We actually miss allowing Jesus to actually make us healthy and clean and healed on, on the inside. 
God spoke to a prophet in, in the Old Testament named Samuel. And he said this to Samuel. This is really, really helpful for me in this whole thing. He says this, the Lord, God, does not look at the things people look at. Okay, God doesn't just look at what we wear and what we do and what, how we look. He's more concerned with the heart. He says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. People look at the bark. People look at the branches. People look at the leaves. But, but God actually can see the heart. See, God's the only person in, in the room today that can actually see past everything into your heart. He already knows what's, what's in there. And a lot of us, we spend a lot of time and energy into, into kind of like what we are trying to project, like this image we're trying to project. But Jesus actually invites us to something so much deeper than that. See, the idol of image, when we idolize image, we just get convinced, man, I am whatever I project. Whatever I, can, whatever I do on the outside, that's what's truest about me. And Jesus says, no, I invite you to something much more deep than that. And I don't just look at the outward appearance. I actually... I actually care about the heart. And I wonder for some of us today, maybe, maybe the biggest step is to just like a tree, <laughs> just like a tree to say, Jesus, you see what's on the inside. You know what I come in with. And maybe for you, you're here, you're here week after week after week and the inside's just rotting. It's like, it's not getting any better, and you feel like that maybe the thing for you is supposed about to unravel, and you feel like you have to project a certain image, and you're supposed to act a certain way. Maybe Jesus would just say, hey, hey, I already see the inside. Would you invite me in, not just to like the bark and the branches and the leaves, but would you actually invite me into the heart, like to, to your heart would, like the deepest, deepest part of you? And I wonder if Jesus would want to like do some healing there. But so many of us live with this pressure and this weight of trying to be what, who we think we should be or who we're trying to be that we just start to miss who we've actually been created to be. And I'd love to help us just with three simple steps. You'll see them on your outline today. These three steps really can, can be like kind of copied and pasted to this idea of, of image and when we idolize image. But really, it can be applied to the whole of this series, a series of idols, a series of looking at things that may set themselves in the place of God. The first is this, to reject, to reject. Uh, we reject the idol. And maybe, again, for you, that's like this thing of image. It's this thing of, of trying to project a certain thing. It's, it's trying to, to fit a certain label or, or to live inside of this filter. Maybe that's the idol for you. And the, the first step is just to reject that. Say, no, I don't have to live with that kind of pressure. I don't actually have to fulfill that role. I can actually be who God's created me to be. We reject that pressure. Again, maybe it's a different idol. Maybe it's something like comfort or family or, or anything else. We reject it. The second is we release. We release. We release control to God. We release authority to Jesus. We release control of whatever that thing is. Maybe, again, it's for you. It's that filter. It's, it's living into this expectation. It's projecting this certain image, projecting that we have it all together, projecting this pe- person we think we should be. We just release control of that issue. Say, Jesus, it's yours. I'm ultimately your creation. Would you speak into it? And the third is to receive. You receive. Receive who Jesus says you are. Receive who he's created you to be. Receive how he wants to lead and guide your life, not just 
how this idol that may put itself in his place wants to lead your life. You receive his lordship and his leading. And maybe for some of us, maybe, again, like I said, maybe you come here week after week and week, and, and you focus on the external. And Jesus says, actually, I want to be, be God of your heart. Like, I actually want you to surrender your heart. And maybe for some of us today, like, that would be the step. Maybe it'd be the step to actually say, Jesus, you're like not just a, a part of my life. You're not just an idol in my life. You actually are my life. Like I actually take your life. I receive you. Would you change me from the inside out? And I want to pray with you in a few moments. But for some of us, maybe it's just walking those three steps like time and time again. When, when an idol starts to set itself up in the place of Jesus, we, we can identify that. And we just say, no, I'm going to reject. I'm going to release control. I'm going to receive what Jesus has for me. The interesting thing about idols is that all of them are created to be gifts in our life. And Satan, our enemy and the enemy of Jesus, wants to turn them into gods. See, image is a gift from God. God's created you in his image, the the Bible says. And family, like we talked about last week, that's a gift from God. And comfort is a gift from God. But if we're not careful, Satan uses his schemes in our lives and twists those to become the ultimate, to become the gods of our life. And Jesus just wants them to be gifts. And we reject that. We release control of Jesus. And we receive what he has for us. I believe we actually start to, to experience those gifts and what they've created to be. I'd love to pray with you today. And maybe again, maybe you're here and you've never fully given your heart to Jesus. Maybe you've never you're given, given your life to him. I'd love to have a chance to pray with you and maybe even meet you after the service or maybe you'd write it on a connection card. Hey, I began that relationship with Jesus. It's really about making him Lord and leader of your life. The ultimate one who who says things that are true about you and who defines your priorities, your values. That's Jesus and that's what he wants to do. I'd love to pray all together this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you've created a life for us with so many good gifts. Thanks for scriptures like in James that we know that you're the giver of every good and perfect thing. Whether that's experiencing comfort in life, whether that's experiencing security and hope and vision for our lives, whether that's experiencing the gift of family and relationships and the people we call our own in this Life, Or maybe it's this idea of image, of, of realizing our own identity, of having confidence in who we are in you. Maybe, Jesus, we would just surrender those and allow those to be gifts again. I pray in a real tangible way, would you forgive us for the priorities that have gotten a little out of alignment, for the priorities that have shifted themselves, for the ways we put other things in place of you. Maybe that was trying to fulfill a certain expectation. Maybe that was trying to project an image. Jesus, would you just remind us of what you say? Thanks that you look at the heart. Thanks that you care about the heart, the deepest part of us. And Jesus, I pray for the person or the persons who are here. And maybe, again, maybe today, before today, it was like, I've never actually given Jesus control. I've tried to change a lot of things on the outside. I've tried to project a certain thing even around this idea of of Christianity or religion or of church. 
But Jesus, maybe that person today would just say, Jesus, I give you, I give you my life. I give you my heart. Thanks for, like we sang about, going to the grave for me. And taking my sin, taking my shame, taking the things that I've done to disobey and to wrong you and others. Thanks for beating that. Thanks for rising again in your power and your grace, extending your forgiveness and your relationship to us. Maybe for some of us, Jesus, you would just remind us that that's true today, whether we've been walking you for a year or years. Jesus, we give you control. We're your people. We give you control of our lives, of our hearts. We pray just like you spoke through Joshua to say, we yield our hearts to you. We throw away the idols. We throw away the things that would put themselves in your place. And we yield ourselves to you. We pray these things. We, experiencing, we experience these things because of who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.